This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. This podcast was recorded on traditional Denizal land. I'm your host, Jenna Moreland, and I'm sitting on a porch with my co-host and producer of the podcast, Trey Lapashinsky. <laughs> so we had a miscommunication with Alyssa Curry, the executive director with the Saqua Historic Sites, and we're waiting for her sitting on the porch while we record the intro to this podcast, That you, and you'll be hearing from her very soon. Um, I am stoked for today's episode, wrapping up the groundbreaking University of Northern BC-led archaeological dig at the National Saqua Historic Site. The dig took six weeks and had community members and students take part. Over 10 artifacts were discovered along with thousands of artifact flakes, which we will get into later with Alyssa once she shows up and we're off the porch. On this episode, we spoke with Dr. John Driver, who was one of the first archaeologists to work on the site. In 1983, he was invited by Dr. Newt Fladmark, who was first documented the site in 1974. He later returned to the site with Fladmark in 1990 and 1991 for additional excavations. So we spoke with Driver along with Dick Gilbert, who helped Driver and Fladmark. We spoke with them during the actual field study. So we're wrapping up with Alyssa a couple months after the fact, kind of getting her thoughts now that it's sunk in and, and she's had some time to evaluate and maybe get some new information as to where the process is going moving forward. But it was very interesting because... Uh, Dr. John Driver, this is actually his last year with SFU. He's retiring. So we got to speak with him before he he retires. And he also got to visit a site that he (laughs) helped helped discover, I guess. Not discover, but he helped with decades ago, which is awesome. Yeah, it kind of comes full circle. And so just back to Gilbert, too. Dick Gilbert, he was one of the first archaeologists. Man, we cannot say archaeologists. That's so hard to say. He was one of the first archaeologists to survey the cave in the 70s. So obviously I love talking artifacts. And if you listened to our previous episode with Alyssa Curry, I really love the sexy ones. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an inside joke for any of you who've listened to the podcast in the past. So I'm stoked for everyone to hear this episode. But before we get into it, as many of you know, Jenna and I just wrapped up two episodes on the Healing the Hoop conference that was in Fort St. John a couple months ago, which was an eye-opening experience, and it was just overall great for the both of us. And Jenna actually had something she wanted to share about the experience she had in previous episodes, but I'll let her explain uh, kind of what we're going we're gonna to do here. So after the conference, I kind of felt the need to write down my experience during the blanket ceremony. Um It's almost like a journal entry of what I felt at that moment. I shared the doc with Trey, and we decided that I should also share what I wrote with the listeners. We want you to come on this journey with us, and that starts with us being vulnerable, which is also kind of scary. I named this writing piece, it's called Walk With Me, A Ceremonial Experience. I can still feel the beat of George's drum that thumped behind me during the ceremony. Thump, thump, thump. Almost like my own heartbeat was drumming along with him, creating a harmony that is a part of me now. I knew I wanted to write about my experience participating in the blanket ceremony, but what I didn't realize was the impact would hit me days, even weeks after the ceremony. The ceremony was just the beginning. What does being Indigenous mean to me? 
How do I teach my children more about their heritage? Will the racism ever stop? Is reconciliation just a buzzword? I have so many questions and even more questions to learn to ask. I feel protective over my experience. There is a sacred nature to this ceremony that needs to be respected. I remember looking out at the 300 plus conference attendees and wondering if I was doing it right. Doing what right? The small but quiet voice pushed me. My only job was to be present. Be present. I have the same argument with myself every time I meditate. It wasn't until I saw the woman that I had shared the table with at the conference that I felt grounded. Agnes. At least I think that's her name. I looked at Agnes for most of the ceremony. She was praying for me, and in that moment, the nerves, the fear of the unknown, she felt like the only safe place for my gaze to land. I was warm, wrapped in the blanket. The echoes of the chanting were flowing through my soul, and the thumping of the drum was laying a path. My hair smelled of sage and other sacred plants from the smudging George had performed on me before the ceremony cleansing my soul of negativity. My palms were sweating, holding on to the blanket that Loretta had instructed me to hold on tight and not move. Loretta asked for those who knew me to come up and walk with me. The most difficult walk is walking alone, and this was a visual reminder of that. Trey, my co-host of the podcast, held on to my shoulder, and he walked with me. Others joined. Christy Jordan-Fenton and Jocelyn Isert walked with me. They held on to my shoulders and supported my journey. The purpose of this ceremony was to help me find my way, And when an elder approached me after the ceremony and hugged me, he held me tight and said, welcome home. I felt an overwhelming sense of community. A collection of purpose flooded me. I found my way and it's nestled gently between listening and speaking loudly. I can say with absolute certainty, all of us, every single Canadian would be better off today had we embraced Indigenous culture instead of trying to erase it. The stories that are told on our podcast are truly heartbreaking and also inspiring. Trey and I have learned so much from the guests we have interviewed, and I feel privileged to learn from them. I hope you will walk with me on this journey. Be curious. Be an ally. Walk with us. I don't know how many times I've read this, and I even helped you edit it, and hearing you read it, amazing. (laughs) Amazing. This is what we've been trying to say over the past two episodes when we were talking about the experience, and you kind of wrapped it in one nice, beautiful bow. Yeah, yeah. It's it, that was hard not to cry because it makes it takes me back to that experience that I had in that moment. Well, I even remember walking with you, uh, and I've told you this before. I, I was never a vibe person, like I never felt energies, but specifically during that conference and in that moment. Like, I felt it from you, I felt it from the people. It was even uh, an experience in itself for me having all these eyes watching us and and watching this very, very beautiful thing, this beautiful ceremony happening to you. It was just really yeah, it was I different, feel... right? It's it's hard for me to express it because it's not something that I've ever done before. This All these experiences that we've been able to be a part of because of the podcast, it's all new to us. And yeah. it's sometimes it's hard to express the feelings, but they're there. Yeah. And definitely I think it's, opened me up not only my mind but as a person I feel like I'm more open yeah um and I I feel like this is you know we've been doing the podcast now this is what the 10th episode and I feel like we really started 
to catch our stride because of the conference and with those episodes. Yeah. And I, Christy even I before I feel then. so grateful mm-hmm. to be in this position and to to have experienced the things that I've gotten to experience. And I'm it, it makes me so excited for everything else that's to come. And I hope the listeners feel like they're here with us because that is our intention and you might be asking yourselves oh hey why aren't you guys doing this or that oh trust me we probably thought of it <laughs> like we we have ideas about me it's going so true me going hunting about yeah. you know certain things uh, doing the um i'm gonna be attending a sweat, a sweat here yeah. soon yeah yeah so there's just a lot of ideas we have and and we also want not only for our our podcast, but we want you guys to be able to see some of these experiences as, as well, at least ones that we can um, document. So with that being said, we actually started up our social media that we're being a little more active yes. on. Well, let me correct that. Jenna is. She's the one <laughs> handling that. I, I did make an Instagram account. Yeah. So it's called at before the peace. So make sure you follow us on Instagram. Um, you'll get all the updates and some other fun and just like interesting stuff is going to be put on there so it's it's a it's going to be a really good uh profile to follow so and i know that might sound really vague but again we have a lot of ideas and we just don't want to give too much away yeah. now but there there will be more things announced more activities events that we're going to be attending and just ideas we have so make sure you guys keep an eye on our social media and twitter twitter oh, yes. is at before the peace underscore so instagram is at before the peace and twitter is at before the peace underscore so uh follow us on there and stay updated uh which now brings us into our sponsors yeah let's get paid <laughs> this podcast would not be possible without the help of troyer ventures Troyer has been serving our community and the energy industry with tank and vac trucks since 2000. They're built on the principles of hard work, service, and community, and they're proud to offer the financial support to make this program possible. Every time, tank and I vac trucks. <laughs> no, for me, it's ener- energy, energy industry, industry with tank and that, vac trucks. That's a, yeah, that's a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, also, thank you to Epscan Industries for sponsoring the podcast. The company is known for building excellence safely. And we'd also like to thank uh, Click for their support. The Cultural Learning and Innovation Circle is a non-for-profit society that offers mentorship, coaching, and training opportunities. Now it's time for the Saquaw Field Study Wrap-Up. We're going to start off by talking with Simon Fraser University professor, Dr. John Driver, then Dick Gilbert, and Alyssa Curry. You were one of the first to work on the historical site. How does it feel being back doing one final dig before you retire? Well, I'm I'm just here to help out for a few days, so I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying being with the students. Uh, I think what I'm enjoying the most is seeing everything that's happened here in the last 30 years, and especially in the last 10 years, um, now that the uh, Sequoia Heritage Society's bought the land, taken over management of the site. Uh, I feel that it's it's really secure for the future. It's going to be protected. It's going to be managed. Uh, and then it's going to be sort of like the centerpiece for learning about First Nations culture. And uh, that, that makes me feel really good. So what were you hoping to find in this dig? Uh, you mean in the dig we're doing right now? Yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, obviously I'm not in charge of the dig, but I think what this excavation is going to do 
and it will run for the next uh, few years, is to start establishing more about um, the site, the whole site that we have here. You know, it's quite a few acres. Uh, it was probably all used by First Nations people in the past, and I suspect that we'll start finding different kinds of activities here. Uh, when, when I excavated here, we were down near the cave, and so we're finding certain kinds of material, certain kinds of activities. Uh, I think now that they're excavating in, in other areas, they're going to find different activities. And so are you using new tools on old findings? Because with all the, te- like the new technology and everything, I mean, since the 70s, it's got to be very different. Are you kind of going back to some of the stuff that you worked on originally? Yes, I've, uh, in fact, I have a, my, my, my last research grant is to actually go back to the materials we excavated in the 80s and 90s and apply new techniques so um, I have researchers working for me right now who are specialists in ancient DNA. So we're extracting uh, old DNA from the bones of the animals that, that were harvested by First Nations people thousands of years ago. And amongst other things, we're figuring out pretty precisely what they are. Uh, so we get really accurate identifications. And we're, in some cases, we're figuring out where they came from. Uh, because we do have animals here in the early part of the site that that are now extinct in the Peace River. Um, And so we can figure out where they came from when they migrated originally to the Peace River, how long they lived here, and then when did they go extinct. Do you believe with how the relationship and how things have advanced here with the site, do you think um, back when you did the original digs that if there's more like indigenous influence there that it would have progressed in a different way? Or what are your kind of thoughts on that? That's a really good question. And I think it's, it's quite difficult to answer, but the, I think the, um, the work that we originally did at the site, which was really about establishing how long people had lived in this area and and what they had been doing. I, I think that was, a good base, not just for the scientific work, the archaeological work, but I think it was also providing valuable information for the First Nations. So that that first dig luckily um, established that this is an incredibly old site. And, and it really validated the First Nations belief that they have been on this land since time immemorial for, for more than 10,000 years, definitely. And I, I think once... Uh, we realized that the age of the site, it then became more important to have First Nations input into, well, what are we going to do with this site? And the fact that they decided themselves to buy it and and make this the centerpiece uh, of, of really important cultural activities uh, means that now they're, they're directing the research. It's not the archaeologists coming in saying, well, this is what we want to know. It's It's a dialogue now about what could we do? What could we find out? And and I think that's a, a more productive, in the end, that's a more productive relationship to have so that you jointly think about the research. And it might get even better moving forward with the so many things that the society has planned that it's just, you know, it's moving upward. It's just more positive moving forward and into the next couple of years, as I'm sure there's going to be a lot more digs potentially at the site as well, right? Yeah, I think the... Uh, the more, the more you find out, the more questions you ask. Rather than just having the archaeologists ask the questions, uh, 
let's let's share the findings and let's let's sit down together and say well what 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 next what are the next questions what do we want to find out um certainly you know as archaeologists we have things we want to find out first nations have things they want to find out sometimes we want to find out the same things which is which is great uh so with them kind of giving you some input, has that helped your research in any way? I mean, like, because you are kind of more the science-based and they're maybe more the, they know, you know, some of the rituals and stuff like that. So coming together, did that really kind of go aha <laughs> with everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Just sitting down having a conversation, you know, for example, about, traditional ways of preparing food or traditional ways of skinning a beaver um, or as I was talking to somebody the other day in one of the nations and we were talking about um, the final stages of preparing a moose hide and, and what were the traditional materials used for that and we had we had a great conversation about things I had no idea about and, and certainly are not written up in a book anywhere about the um, some of the special materials that they would use when they were working on a hide that now directs us back to the site. Now, did we find that kind of material back at the site? And should we, should we go back through those collections and look for certain things that we hadn't thought to look of, uh, to look at before? I find it interesting that it, this is such a significant find, and you're learning so much from this. But we, a lot of people, didn't even know about this. Like it, it was so overlooked by a lot of the community and just pretty much everybody. Why was that? So the the pro, the process of doing the research, uh, for, say in the eighties and the nineties, um, you know, we we'd come here, we'd excavated, um, we reported the what we'd found in sort of scientific outlets, journals, and so on. And when I came back here, the 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 year after they'd purchased the site, I, I was invited to come back uh, for what was then called National Aboriginal Day, and to give a little talk about the site. And when I when I gave the talk, um, I, I was asked, "How come we, the First Nations, don't have this information?" And the answer was, "Well, it's in, you know it's in scientific journals and books and things." And and so they asked me if I would um, produce something for them that would make that all accessible to them. And so we we pulled together a a book that that just contains the copies of all the scientific articles that we'd written with descriptions in there, uh, you know, for the sort of intelligent layperson about uh, why why this article was written and what, what's significant about it. And, and that was the, really for me, was the first time that I sort of made this connection between the work that we're doing and the fact that it was not getting back to the community. So they asked a really critical question, which was, you know, why are you keeping this stuff from us? And my response was, okay, yeah, let's let, let's find a way to share this. So that book was printed and distributed to all the nations, uh, all the public libraries in the region, and all the schools in the region. Um, the, the next stage, what I'm working on right now, is ensuring that all the material... Uh, both the the documents about where we dug and what we what we found, plus the actual physical things themselves, are all going to be uh, returned and made available to, firstly to the nations, but secondly also to future researchers. So that's an, uh, another important step in in bringing the material back to the community. 
Um, but this, the other aspect of this, I think, is that I, I've said this a number of times in the last week, is I don't think that the, the local communities generally have fully grasped yet how important this site is. And it was designated a national historic site. Um, that This is, you know, a Canadian, national Canadian program. It's, um, that was back in 2019. There's very, very few First Nations sites that have been designated as national historic sites. Most of the, yeah, most of the, if you look up the register of national historic sites, most of them are relating to, you know, the colonial period, relating to Europeans coming Mm -hmm. to Canada. And the the history of Canada. Yeah, yeah. you know, railroads and fur trading and things like this. So it was really important. And and this was, again, this was driven by the Heritage Society. It wasn't driven by me. So having this uh, site designated a national historic site makes it really important. And, you know, I don't want to be too commercial about this, but uh, it, it is a site that tells such interesting stories about the past that I could see I could see in the future a fairly major interpretive center being set up in this in this area, not necessarily right here. I think this is almost this is too valuable a place to start doing a lot of big buildings on. But I could see down by down on the Alaska Highway. Yeah, uh, I mean, our first ever interview that we did on this podcast was with Gary Oker and his vision of what he wants for the site. It sounds like it's going to be pretty epic, I think, and people are going to learn a lot, which is such a great thing to be a part of. Yeah. What, what do you think was the most rewarding part of working with the local indigenous community? Oh, I think their enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they uh, and and their well, and the other thing that I that I particularly value is that we work we work both with traditional knowledge and scientific knowledge, and they're they're sort of equal partners. Um, so it's not that the science beats the traditional knowledge. It's not that the traditional knowledge is more valued than the scientific knowledge. Together, they create stories about this place that. Um, they would they wouldn't be as uh, they wouldn't be as uh, comprehensive as they are if if we only had the science or we only had the traditional knowledge. The fact that we put these together it really really makes a compelling story. Yeah, the you know for example there are there are there are stories uh, the Dene nations have stories about an early time when you know giant animals roamed the earth. Well. What do we what do we do? We we dig up the bones of giant animals that used to roam the earth. Uh, you put those two things together. That's a, that's a that's a really compelling story. Yes, yeah. yes. And yeah. which artifact holds the most significant for you? Is it the first one you ever found? <laughs> I feel like that would be hard to, to say. <laughs> that's a hardball question there. <laughs> yeah, that that's a really tricky question. Um, uh, and, and archaeologists get that asked that question all the time. We always say, "Oh, well, it's not the it's not the things you find; it's the things you find out, and all this sort of stuff." <laughs> uh, but there are some pretty significant artifacts here. There's um, the one that everybody knows about, or most people would would know about, is the very early spear point. That you know, it's it's one of the oldest artifacts in British Columbia. Um, it, it ties this part of the world into other parts of North America, you know, just at the end of the Ice Age, when, when people were making these, these, these spear points in a particular shape and style. And, and so it ties this area into other early 
um, First Nations cultures uh, in the Americas. Uh, but there were there were things like that little stone bead that that was found also at the the bottom of the site uh, in, in the earliest layers. And again, one of the very few pieces of personal decorative items that's ever been found uh, anywhere in North America. So it's uh, yeah, there's there's many different many different objects here that are that are significant. And and were you there when you were the one to find that spear point? Well, so that's a great story because <laughs> Dick and I were there. We were we were working together, and uh, at the bottom of the site, the um, the the layers are incredibly hard. And and so you know people have this picture of archaeologists using like, little trowels and and little brushes and and so on. Well, you can't use that on on clay that's as hard as concrete. So we actually had a little pick going down there. We were chipping away at this stuff, and uh, I was chipping away and filling up a bucket. And Dick happened to be taking his. It was his turn at the screen, and instead of his turn to dig, and uh, up in this bucket went that uh, went that spear point, and I think. It, Dick, it was up in the next bucket that the the little bead t- showed up. Yeah, so we were we were co co finders of of those two. Yeah. Oh, how cool. Yeah, very exciting. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it was in the ice free corridor at the end of the ice age, right? So is this kind of potentially just a small piece of a bigger discovery? Like, how much of this are you going to dig, or not? I guess not you, but how much do you- do you want to be <laughs> dug <laughs> after you move on? <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, let's deal with the ice-free corridor okay, first, okay. right? Because the ice-free corridor theory, it's a, it's a theory that's been around for well over 100 years, that there were, you know, Canada was basically covered by ice sheets. But there there's always been a suggestion that between the two big ice sheets, sort of just to the east of the Rocky Mountains, which is where we are, uh, there was a an ice-free corridor, and that p- people potentially could have migrated, the very first people to enter the Americas could have migrated from Asia, across the Bering Strait, because that was dry land, into Alaska, into the Yukon, down the ice-free corridor, you know, on the east slopes of the Rockies, and then get south of the ice sheets and spread out into what is now the, the United States. Um, Knut Fladmark, the guy who directed the first excavations here, actually was the was the person who proposed a different route, which was that the people came down the coast of British Columbia um, and that the coast of British Columbia was ice-free uh, and that people could have traveled down that coast, possibly in boats going from one ice-free area to the next. So it's kind of interesting that he ended up excavating this site. But what we now know about the ice-free corridor is that it didn't open early enough to so there, eventually, as the ice began to melt, there was an ice-free corridor, but it didn't open up early enough to account for the sites that we find south of the where the ice was. And, and the evidence that we now have from the earliest layers at this site, both from the artifact types, uh, but also from the DNA in the animal bones, is that people were, had, were already south of the ice sheets, and that they moved up into the Peace River area as the ice here melted and as the big the big meltwater lakes disappeared, land emerged, people moved into this area, and they, they came basically, in my opinion, almost certainly um, from south and east of here. So likely starting in southern Alberta, coming up along the east side of the Rockies and, and moving north 
uh, into the Peace River. And the, the DNA of the animal shows this extremely clearly. And the style of the spear point, the early spear point that we find is very similar to slightly earlier spears in southern Alberta. So the, there were already people uh, in, in, in the United States and, and the southern portions of Alberta um, before the ice melted. Okay. And so this is actually people moving north uh, into this into this region, not moving south from mm. Alaska. Now it's possible that as the ice melted further, eventually that corridor opens up, and it may be that there were also then people coming down from Alaska. But they were meeting people who were probably, you know, related to them, but they hadn't been they hadn't been together for thousands of years because they're moving around yeah. and traveling. Well. Yeah, yeah. So it's it is important that it's in the it. it that it's in the ice-free corridor, but this this is not the first people coming into the Americas. The, these people, were, they, their, their ancestors had been here in the Americas for thousands of years before they moved into this area. Nobody could live here before because it was just a sheet of ice. Mm. Yeah. So that, it, 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 it is still very significant, but it tells a slightly different story. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't tell the story of people coming from north to south. It's actually people going from south to north. Wow. And and so how much of up here are you wanting to dig? Well, I think at the, so from what I've seen at this site and, and also from what we've seen uh, from a, uh, a core taken out of the Charlie Lake itself, a um, core that goes down into the mud at Charlie Lake, it looks as if this area became habitable around about 13,000 years ago. So we've got what is probably the oldest evidence that you're going to find. It's possible that we might find something a little bit older, uh, either at this site, um, not, not exactly where we were digging before, but, but possibly in another area uh, of this site, or potentially at another site in, in the Peace River. Uh, but to, we've got you know pretty compelling evidence, I think, now from a whole bunch of different places and different kinds of sources uh, that it was around about 13,000 years ago that, that dry land was emerging here. And so with dates here of 12,500 years ago, we're looking pretty much at the first, the first people on this landscape. Wow. When you did find the, um, sorry, what the original artifact, what was it called again? Oh, the, 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 the fluted point? The fluted point, yeah. yes. Okay, so when you found that, walk me through the process of, like, how did you, like, take care of it and, and not break it and, <laughs> and, I don't know. So what happens after you <laughs> yeah. make a discovery okay. like the, this? The extent of my archaeology <laughs> is basically friends, like, Ross on friends. Oh. <laughs> so I, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so we've... Uh, so most of the artifacts here are made of stone, and, and stone preserves perfectly well. Uh, so you, you, so you know, it's you, not very delicate. It's not too delicate. Okay. You, you put it in a plastic bag, you, you label it, um, you make sure the label stays with the artifact, uh, you make sure it's stored in a safe place, and, and it's been stored for 40 years at Simon Fraser University. The, the, the other thing, by the way, the other remarkable thing about this site is that it's packed with animal bones and normally when you excavate archaeological sites in the in the sort of boreal forest region of Canada the soil is so acidic that within a few hundred years the the bones have gone they've just been eaten away so this site is almost unique 
well, it's unique in Canada because it's the only site in Canada where you have a record of animals that starts with the Ice Age and goes right up to the present. There's no other there's no other site I can think of in Canada where you've got all these different layers with the bones in every single layer, and then the fact that the bones are preserved here and in some and and particularly in the early levels, superbly preserved. I mean, there you you would not know they were twelve thousand years old. They're in absolutely pristine condition. Uh, fortunately, they have been. That, that preservation environment means you can take them out of that environment. Again, you can, you can make sure they've dried out properly, and then you put them into a bag with a label, and they're perfectly stable. So we're, we're extracting DNA out of bones that were um, excavated 40 years ago. The people I work with who do the DNA analysis tell me that they've, they've sometimes gone to uh, sites where the bones have only been out of the ground for a few years, and the DNA has all deteriorated. And so is that because just because of the cave, because of the rock? It's because the, uh, it, it's mainly because of, of a very strange sort of drainage phenomenon on that hillside. Oh. So the, the, the water from, you know, up here, it flows down over the, over the rock. And if you go to the cave, sitting in front of the cave, there's a great big boulder. Mm-hmm. And so the, before the water can get to the sort of towards the boulder, it's already already gone down and seeped into the ground. So all the bones that are near the boulder have been pretty much kept dry mm. uh, for thousands of years, and they haven't had that acidic soil acids haven't been percolating down and and gradually eroding them away. Oh. So it's a very very unusual preservation conditions. Yeah, the rock itself helps neutralize some of the um, the acids in the soil too. Mm. Yeah. So it's that combination of uh, drier, somewhat drier environment. And again, it's very, very deep. So it's the, the early bones are four to five meters down. So it's, it's dry down there. And uh, any water that does get down, uh, has, some of the acids have been neutralized by the by the local bedrock. Wow, it's like a perfect storm, everything coming together to, <laughs> for you to be yeah. able to discover this. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so our last question is, what does reconciliation mean to you? Boy, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think reconciliation to me means um, finding out from First Nations what it is that they want done with their heritage and making sure that what we do is in accordance with their wishes, not in accordance with our wishes. And hopefully I can convince people that a a scientific approach to heritage can be beneficial and useful and provide information that you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, But I, I I, I think it's really putting their interests in the heritage first and um, showing that if we if we work on heritage from many different points of view and different experts contribute different things, uh, everybody benefits. Okay, and I just thought of one more question <laughs> off of that because so with you retiring, is it are you kind of sad to pass on this project to others? Or are you excited for future archaeologists to discover more? Yeah, I'm not at all sad. Yeah. I just want to, I, I want to make sure, you know, everything that we know and everything that we've 
recorded is passed to the next generation. And I am sure there are going to be people who are more imaginative <laughs> and, uh, and people who develop new scientific techniques, people who come here with different insights from the First Nations communities. They're, they're going to do things here that we would never have thought of doing. So I suspect you'll probably come back to visit. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to come back and work at the screen. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to be in charge of it. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. This was really cool, and I learned a lot. I'm definitely going to need to uh, listen back just to retain everything. Yeah. There's a lot of information, but thank you so much, <laughs> yeah. John. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you. You were a part of the original digs in the 70s and every dig since. How has your archaeology changed throughout the years? In terms of my, my feelings towards what it, in the 70s, it was a lot of archaeologists finding material, interpreting it for First Nations, and that was it. Now where I'm at and, and a lot of other people are, this, it's not my story to tell. It's not my culture. It's their story, it's their culture, and whatever I can do to help them, tell it. So that, when you talk about change, that's, it's more of a mental shift. There's certainly the scientific stuff has improved immensely in terms of what you can do with artifacts. And with technology yeah, and everything. technology, but to me the biggest shift has been a, a mental one. Yeah, instead of telling, you're kind of assisting. Yeah, do you, do you want my help? And if I can help... It's your story. You tell it. And if I can provide scientific backup for it, that's great. Interesting. And so, how? What was the? What was it like? The first dig, the first original dig. We were 1974. <coughs> excuse me, 1974. We were uh, my wife and I and a, a number of other crew people were doing the. Uh, survey for BC Hydro on the second dam, the Peace Canyon Dam, and they extended our survey from the dam site to uh, the BC Alberta border. And we were working our way down the piece, and one of our crew members who was a local just mentioned out of the blue, are you, inter are you interested in caves? Well, of course. So I like caves. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they have, they have a, a lot of potential. So this is certainly outside of the hydro reservoir. So um, Dr. Canoe Fladmark and his wife and myself and my wife came up here on our first day off, located it, very easy to find, and put in a test pit. And it was normally uh, test pits and, and archaeological sites in um, British Columbia, northern British Columbia, are... 30, maybe 40 centimeters at most. And this was easily, we were down a meter cultural material. So it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a couple of months, and I was at graduate school at the University of Alberta, and my one of my thesis advisors is interested in this sort of stuff. So we came back and enlarged that test pit. It was a 50 centimeter by one centimeter. We enlarged it and got more material and life took over take a different twist and uh, then we fast forward to 1983 and uh, Dr. Fladmark and crew which was on 
came back here and we did a formal research set of excavations down at the cave and that's where a lot of the initial early material we were down you know four and a half five meters of cultural material and uh, found some very early stuff plus the fact that this is one of the few sites that has bone preservation normally you don't find bones uh, in archaeological sites because the, the acidity of the soil it just you know, rots naturally rots them away. Mm-hmm. But because the cave is a limestone, it offsets the acidity of the soil. So we have uh, bison bones, for example, that date to twelve and a half thousand years at the bottom, with artifacts, cut marks on them. There's no question of the relationship. And all the way up, and we big um, mammal bones, fish bones, small bird bones, lemmings. Wow. All sorts of things, and it, it, it's truly a a site that has multi layers to it. It's it's deep, it's undisturbed. All of the dates line up so that the oldest is at the bottom, <laughs> the newest is at the top. So when you first came here on your day off, what, was that when you were like, okay, we might have found something here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it well, was kind of like, whoa, green. It was a, it, was a, it was an aha moment for yeah. sure, and. You know, when you start looking very quickly at the at the old uh, glacial lake peace la- levels, because a lot of this was all when the when the ice left, it was huge lakes all over the all over the the country, and then glacial lake peace was very large. And that, that and you're meaning and, like the ice age when it when it yeah, melted. When okay. It all melts away, but you got the water left, and it's being held back by ice dams and whatnot, and the the lake level is not that much lower than the cave so it would have been above that so it would have been open and accessible to uh, animals humans whatever at the time so yeah you're right it became pretty clear pretty quick that there's there might be something here plus the bone preservation yeah with keeping that in mind and you know the multiple digs over the you know the, the, the past a couple decades What's the potential look like in the future? Like these digs could be happening, I'm guessing, for years and years where things can be found. Correct? Yeah, the the amount of excavation at the at the cave or the between what we have you been down there? Sorry. Yes, I barely fit in there, but yeah, I have been down there. <laughs> but the, okay, so the cave itself is is very shallow in terms of deposit, and virtually nothing came out of the cave archaeologically, but where that uh, big uh, rock is out in front we call it a parapet that had moved off a couple of times over and created a void back in there oh. the materials are building up in but hide there they're not sloughing off down to the creek or anything else so you got just everything aligning and and so it just builds up and behind there like i said you know four and a half five meters of it and how has the industry's relationship changed, I guess, working with Indigenous people over the years? Like, you've already mentioned that you changed your perspective on it and changed your mental thinking. So how has your work, has that really made a difference by changing the thinking, by, by instead of telling, by bringing them in, has it really made that much more mm-hmm. of an impact? Yeah. 
that that question when you asked John or Sarah, they're the, they're the academic archaeologists. I took a different little path in life, but I stayed attached to archaeology all of the years. And what I do now is personally do is uh, we have a small consulting company. So we work for whatever client wants us to go and uh, check out properties and see if there's anything there. So the research part of it has changed. Um, Farid, Dr. Farid Rabtula from UNBC has been doing these kinds of uh, community-based field schools and that for uh, 15 some odd years, 20 years. And it certainly has changed from just university students doing the work and moving on in the profession to the integration of First Nations uh, members being part of, again, their story. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the years, uh, a number of those students have gone on to pursue academics in, in terms of archaeology, and they're becoming more and more First Nations archaeologists out there which is really good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hopefully things like this, this is the first of a five-year uh, plan here with uh, the blessing and the encouragement of uh, the, at least the, the, the Saquon Heritage Society made up of the, the three owners, the three band owners of uh, the property. And are you going to be working <coughs> on it then for the next five years? Do you plan per to? Personally, I will come up. I'm up here uh, as, a, as a guest and as, a, as friends of the people that are there. I love this site. It's very special to me. So I, I just took a week and came up. Oh, that's so, so cool. You have an attachment to it. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I do. It's Yeah, I mean, you were one of the... <laughs> that's so cool. You were the one who found it. <laughs> well, we... <laughs> Every 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 kid in the neighborhood knew it was party site. This 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 place has been known by the locals for ever, but there's been no archaeological context put to it. Mm -hmm. You know, even the property owners at the time when we were first here uh, had no idea that it was um, such huge significance. Yeah, yeah. And in, uh, in 1983, when we were doing our digs here and finding phenomenally interesting and essentially uh, theory changing uh, items, artifacts, and bones. Uh, their daughter was off in England digging up Roman ruins because she had a passion for archaeology and had no idea what was in her backyard at the time. Wow, that's so crazy. <laughs> so you, you don't see it. And if you're not looking for it. Yeah. Uh, so we ask all of our guests this question and I want to ask it to you as well uh, what does reconciliation mean to you that's a tough one because if, if you if you're trying to reconcile you've got to first get to the point where you recognize the problem and I don't think that uh, certainly First Nations understands problems and my wife is First Nations, so I get that side of it. But the, um, I don't think society is, personally, I don't think society as a whole has got there. Politicians, because politicians will say anything that makes it sound good. Um, and there's the whole thing of, uh, you know, apologies in Parliament and so on and so forth. Uh, apologies out of Victoria. Um, 
you can say you're sorry, but you gotta you gotta follow through. And we still have, you know, how many how many First Nations across the country still don't have drinking water? You know, promises, promises, promises. Reconciliation goes nowhere without some concrete action. Uh, you asked me my personal opinion. <laughs> there it is. Thank you. I really appreciate you talking to us today, and yeah. I hope that we can talk to you again when you, if no. you decide to come up. <laughs> well, like you, you'll never be back. Is this? Oh no, no. Okay, no, okay, no. good, good. Unless, it, well, <laughs> yeah, never say never, right? I, I it, like I said, the friends with Dr. Ram Tiller, um and Mike Richards, who's a, a doctor at SFU. Uh, we know all know each other. It's just a small group of people, so an opportunity to get together and and meet the students, uh, share whatever knowledge we have with the students. It's great. So I'm curious to see what this place is going to look like in five, ten years from now, with all the plans that oh. that they have. It's it's pretty well, exciting. So you know, it'd be yeah, cool for you to come back yeah. and see well, everything. Yeah. No, I, I was fortunate enough to be invited to come up last year. With they had the an elders session for about 10 days and I, I got asked to do three half days on archaeology and so on so you know anything to give back and to you know like I said what can I help you with to help to tell your story and if nothing I'll shut up and get out of the way <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no, as long as I can still walk and function I'll, I'll be back up here every year to see and I'm only here for a week this year so well, hopefully we get to see you again. Thank you so much, Dick. Yeah, Appreciate thank you. It. No, thank you very much. Sorry. Other other jobs. I just love how it's turning into like it's all, like I I love it here. I I love that it's it's becoming its own cultural experience the second you kind of come onto the property. Yeah, and how all of these projects are tying into one another. That's really exciting mm-hmm. for me, how they are all building on one another and how each part of this is one piece of a larger puzzle. So I want to, well, like, I guess Trey wants to get to the sexy stuff right uh, away. <laughs> right off the bat, let's get sexy with the artifacts. How many artifacts artifacts did you find? So we found, I think, about 15 tools. tools. And I say tools okay. and not artifacts because this is something I actually learned during the field school is that um, an artifact includes basically anything that is um, culturally made, cultur- human produced. Okay. Um, that includes well over a thousand flakes that we found. And those are the non-sexy <laughs> artifacts for, for Trey and, and our, the <laughs> listeners who have heard me distinguish between the, the tools are, you know, the arrowheads, the scrapers, the things that look recognizable to the average person versus an artifact, which often is only identifiable once you have the specific lens of archaeology. And I found it was super interesting because um, on the Energetic City side, we had talked to Dr. Farid Remtula, uh, and he was talking about the flakes, and he said they were super interesting because that meant there was tool maintenance, yes. which brings, uh, you know, bolsters the fact that there were people here. Yes, absolutely. It 
confirms the oral histories. There's also, again, this is something I'm still learning about, but there's also different types of flakes. So there's tool maintenance flakes and oh. there's tool creation flakes. Um, oh. Obviously, I do not have the knowledge yet to <laughs> differentiate that. And, you know, with the, the volume of material we found, there's still a lot of cataloging work to be done. But we did find abundant evidence of both human occupation of the site and potentially human settlement or what we would you know consider a longer term occupation of the site so we're now just over a month and a half since uh the the dig concluded where yeah now that it's you like kind of let it sit in you guys are i'm guessing in the process of examining these artifacts and figuring out what you're going to be doing to them and and broadcasting it to the public that information what are your thoughts coming out of that and uh, what's the next step specifically with this field study that uh, just concluded well you know the thing that's most exciting for me about the field school is how although you know six weeks was the duration of the on-site program that it's really something with a longer term objective so that was the first six weeks of a five-year research partnership with UNBC and SFU um, right now, uh, UNBC has the artifacts in their custody, and they are photographing and cataloging some of that initial material. Um, we're also working with SFU on those sides of things, including the material that was excavated during the previous excavations on the site. And all of that is kind of coming together um, to tell the complete story of Saqua. So... There's still a lot of work to be done. Um, right now, everything's being photographed, everything's being cataloged. That's with the help of some students at UNBC right now. And then one of our next steps will be transferring that to SFU for temporary custody until we have our repository status, at which case that material, or at which point the material will come back to Saquel. And so the goal there is to have the artifacts, obviously, within the house to have it as a full-blown. I forgot the, is this essentially a museum you're, you're looking at for Yeah, Saquon? so we are creating a, a museum and interpretive center. The term you're looking for is artifact repository. And an artifact repository is a designation you receive from the BC Archaeology Branch, and that gives you the official capacity to hold archaeological artifacts. So we are currently working with the Archaeology Branch, SFU, and UNBC to develop our capacity to become an artifact repository. And it's at that point that the transfer materials will come back to Saigua. I know you've said that before, but I'm going to keep getting you to repeat that until I retain it. Because yeah. <laughs> there's so much information. It's, it's a new language. It's, it's so really complicated. Is. It's so complicated. So the participants that were helping with the study, they were here for multiple weeks. Um, and when we were here, it was raining. Um, and like, it's a bit of a grueling process. Like, how did they handle it? Well, you know, when at the end of the field school, we asked the students what the, you know, the best and worst part of the experience was for them. And I was a bit anxious asking for the worst part of it. Of course, you brace yourself for what feedback you're going to get, especially for, for Saqua. And for me personally, this was the first time we'd ever hosted this kind of program. And when we asked what the worst uh, part of the program was across the board, almost everyone in unison responded, the clay. <laughs> the clay was the oh. worst part of it because, as you said, we had a little bit of damp weather. Um, they were pushing the material through a eighth inch 
um, screen for for artifacts, particularly those very small flake style artifacts. And so that was a, a good laugh for everyone to say that the clay was the worst part. Really, that felt so rewarding for me to hear that. <laughs> that it wasn't um, you? It, it wasn't me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the food. It, there were so many other things that I thought could have come up in that conversation. And to hear so many people just say, you know, the environmental factors that we had no control over and that really are reminiscent of what it is to work in cultural resource management in the Peace Region is the worst of it. I think we did a great job. And how many students were there and how many Indigenous community members were there? So we completed the program with six university students and four Indigenous community members. Uh, those four all passed the course and received their full university credit, uh, as well as obviously the university students, um, a couple of which are actually back in the Peace Region working in CRM, Cultural Manage Resource Management, jobs this summer. And what was the difference? Did you have a different experience working with students versus working with the Indigenous community members? So I would say we worked really hard to make sure that all of the participants experienced an, as much of an equal opportunity as possible and that the learning outcomes were the same for everyone. That said, I would say each individual person's relationship with the program was affected by their cultural background. So just as an example of that, one of the interactions I got to witness during the field school, which was really meaningful for me, was an interaction between a university student and an Indigenous community member. And they were going through some of the artifacts that they had found in their excavation unit. And the university student made a comment uh, to the effect of, you know, it's really crazy to think that Somebody could be sitting here 10,000 years ago sharpening a stone tool. And the Indigenous community member said, it's crazy to think that could have been my ancestor. Oh, And, you know, thinking about how even given and presented the exact same learning opportunity at surface level has really different implications depending on what your background is and what knowledge you're bringing into the program. Obviously, the university students had more formal academic training that they could contribute. Um, our community members brought in a knowledge of the land and of the territory that you can't really learn in a classroom in the same way. Mm. And so other than, so there, there was soil disturbance during the dig due to a previous homestead and garden on the property. Were there any other problems that the team faced? Other oh. than the clay. Oh, oh. oh, other than the clay. Oh, wait. That was just what she talked about. Oh, I, didn't have that I think question. I see what you mean. Okay. Oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> I know when Spencer was talking with Farid, he had mentioned that there was soil disturbance because there used to be a homestead here in a garden. Was that kind of it or was there other issues? You know, from a archaeological standpoint, that was the biggest factor and the biggest question mark that we're still looking to better understand and to better you know, experience in the property is where is their original un, untouched cultural layers um, or untouched layers, cultural layers and, and other types of what's called stratigraphy, which is the layering in the soil. Um, I mean, I think it was exciting for us, the volume of materials that we found. 
uh, one of the, I won't say it's a challenge, but a reality of the program is that when you're teaching archaeology and you're having people do archaeological excavations for the very first time, I think it's a lot slower than what people expect. And that's actually a good thing because it means that we're taking our time to process the material carefully to make sure nothing's missed. Um, but it's also important for us to recognize that archaeology as a science is destructive by its nature. When you open up a one meter by one meter excavation unit and you start taking material out of that unit for possibly the first time in tens of thousands of years, there's no way to put that material back mm. in the same way. And so being slow and deliberate with that excavation process to make sure that we're documenting meticulously everything that comes out of that unit is really important. But I think from the outside, it can definitely appear as if it's going really slow. <laughs> I, I just feel like you'd have to have so much patience, <laughs> like so much patience. Well, I, I think of it from like the journalistic lens, I guess, of like, we don't know what happened that long ago, so we're you're taking these artifacts. Yeah, you're yeah. Te you're telling a story, and that's why obviously you go through the process, um, not only to solidify potentially that story, but also so you don't get the artifacts don't get lost. Like it makes sense with the process of of it going through UNBC and SFU. And, like, with everything getting labeled, I mean, this is all new to me, so it just sounds like <laughs> it's, it's like I just learned it because I did. But it's just so it's just so interesting. Um, and then, so, from when the artifacts get documented, you said they go to SFU and the repository, correct? Yes. My new word. And then they come here. From there... Who dis not decides, but who researches the actual artifacts to explain what it tells us, like the meaning behind what was found? That's a really great question. And the simple answer is that there isn't a simple answer. Um, research often is driven by, you know, existing knowledge within, in this case, the archaeology community and some potential either researcher or in some case students having that niche area where they're interested in learning more. Now, previously when these research projects were undertaken, it was solely related to the research goals of either a often tenured professor um, or a funding partner from, you know, a, a large academic institution. And one of the things that we're really excited about on this project, and particularly, you know, the five-year research project that we have with UNBC and SFU, but also how archaeology is changing as a whole, is that more and more the questions that are being asked and investigated are coming from the communities where these artifacts are found. And so decolonizing archaeology, yeah, which we talked about with John, John and Dick <laughs> mentioned it yeah. a couple times when we talked to them, which I also found, you know, something I never thought of beforehand. I didn't know that was, I guess, an issue, but it makes a lot of sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah. 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 
Sorry, yeah, so so we're looking for opportunities not only to have the community involved in eventually the curation projects and and the ways that we can showcase and talk about these items, but also collecting questions from the community and what do we want to learn more about in the archaeological record and letting the community drive those future discussions and that future research. Now, by community, do you mean, like, how does that work? Is it... Is it going to a board of community members with these artifacts, to like elders, sorry, elders, knowledge keepers? How does how is that going to work, or is that something you guys kind of haven't figured out yet? So that's something that's going to be written into our collections policy once that's finished. Um, but the bottom line is that Sequa is a, a, a Deneza-led organization. We have three stakeholder nations that are each represented uh, on the board of directors but that we also have opportunities to visit those communities and meet with elders. Uh, so, for example, next month we're working on a project that we're planning on having elders from multiple communities come out and have their input in that process. Mm. So, you know, it's important that, you know, we understand from a society and structural organizational standpoint, there's kind of one method, and that's mm. through our board of directors and through uh, so on and, and so forth with the um the chiefs and councils and administrative staff, but there's also a really great sense of community for uh, involving the entire Deneza communities. During the field school, for example, it was not open to just the stakeholder nations. It was open to any Indigenous person in Treaty 8. Um, and we're hoping that more and more will be able to open up those opportunities and get that feedback. And once the experience itself gets out there, and I know... Hopefully media is a part of that as well. And once people hear about the experience, the next field study, the next field school hopefully has more and more members. Yeah, like what what is the plan? Or I guess what does 20, the rest of 2022 look like for Saquaw? Uh, so we have a lot of other projects in the works. Um, two things specifically that I'm really excited about that tie into the work done during the field school is we are continuing archaeological investigations on the property. We actually hold two different archaeology permits for the property. And so the field school work was done under a research permit. Uh, we are also doing excavations under a heritage investigation permit, which is a slightly different structure um, held under uh, Sarah Gamble, who is our contract consulting archaeology archaeologist for the site and all of that work is being done in cooperation and as part of a broader conversation with both so having um both permits complement each other and complement the previous excavations that were done on the site is really exciting and having that all tied together and being able to ask questions not only of the material excavated this year um, but also excavated you know as far back as 74 and those are wow. conversations that can be very broad about use of the site they can be very technical just today we were talking about the specific numbering of artifacts and to make sure that there's a continuity between the previous research excavations and the ones that are conducted mm -hmm. on the site now um, talking with the archaeology branch about the specific numbering of the site. All of those things are tying into a lot of ultimately behind-the-scenes work um, happening here at Saqua that will kind of be manifested in those public front-facing front opportunities probably next summer. Um, we also have um, some exciting 
opportunities coming up, uh, cultural opportunities, learning opportunities. One of the things that happened during the field school that was a really incredible experience uh, for, for all the participants, but especially for me, was we processed a moose hide. And that project was a way for us to understand and recognize the value not only of the academic knowledge and to see the, you know, the stone tools that are in the archaeological record, but that those stone tools are reflective of a culture that's still being practiced. And so we got to work on a moose hide. We actually got to do a little bit of experimental archaeology using some of the stone tools we made to try out different methods on that moose hide. And it's now back at Saquon. It's been fully tanned and is ready for public programming. So we're actually going to be using the moose hide that was processed during the field school to offer some learning opportunities for the public moving forward, hopefully in this fall. Can I take a picture of it? Before yeah, I absolutely. I'll put, I'll put it on our Instagram at Before the Peace. <laughs> uh, I believe we're wrapping up right yep. now. I got one last question for you. We're coming up almost at a year that you've been here. Yep. Lots going gone on. <laughs> big year for you. Yeah. Yeah. Big year. <laughs> big big year. You know, as that as we close into that year anniversary of you being here with the society, what are your thoughts? You know, this has been a year for me of incredible personal and professional growth. Um, I often talk about. Um, that the warmth I've received from the community and the support and the connections that I've been able to make. And those have all been an incredible part of being in this role and the opportunity that I've been given that I'm so thankful for every day that I get to show up and have like the best day at work, which I feel like I'm one of those lucky people that gets to have those days all the time. Um, but, you know, I've really been thinking about this week what – the last year has meant for me as a person, as a professional, as somebody that was born and raised in the peace region. And the last year has been so full of stepping outside my comfort zones in sometimes really uncomfortable ways and of challenging myself and my assumptions about you know, my career, my relationship with the land, my relationship with the people who live and work here. And reflecting on the last year, I think that what I've really noticed is the most challenging parts of my job, and don't get me wrong, there has been very, very challenging parts of my job in the last year. But the parts that have been most challenging are actually the internal aspects. The, the most challenging parts of my job have been the moments that I have to stop and reflect about my own biases and about my own comfort zones and why they stop or have stopped where they are. And every time that I've had one of those uncomfortable moments in the last year where I have to step outside my comfort zone, I have been rewarded by you know, the warmth of the Indigenous community here and how welcoming and supportive they've been. Um, a really fantastic, great board who not only has the best interests of Saqua and the society and the site in mind, but also uh, the care of, of their employees and, and the people that are committed to helping this site become a reality and become a site that can be shared with everyone. 
And so this year has been a chance for me to really reflect on on some of the biases that I had as a person. And I would say that every single time I have stepped outside of my comfort zone, I have become a better person for it. And the Alyssa of 10 years ago probably wouldn't have even taken this job. And, you know, I think I've, I've had a lot of growth in the last, let's say, 10 years. But in the last year, getting to a point where I would accept a job um, working with a community that I'm not part of, obviously, directly um, to the last year, really feeling like I am starting to build those connections in a meaningful way and being able to have that genuine connection has been really, really meaningful for me. And I continue to be so humbled by the community that has been so welcoming and supportive of me as I'm going through what I now realize has been a real stage of personal growth. Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at energeticcity.ca slash podcasts. If you have a guest or program idea, email beforethepeace at musafm.ca. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.